Hello, you're listening to Treble Treble Podcast. I'm your host, Seth. I'll be your host for this adventure. Tonight's show is coming to you from Portland, Oregon, as most shows will. So if you listen to the first episode, and I hope you did, you learned a little bit about what this podcast is about and my connection to music. Now that we've made that connection, we can start our adventure. I mentioned Cameron Crowe a lot in the first episode, so I figured let's continue on that train tonight. The first episode is all about Pearl Jam's debut album, 10. Where to begin? Where to begin? Well, I'd recommend opening a nice bottle of red wine like myself, Maybe a nice Chianti. Since we're talking about Pearl Jam's debut album, we have to get into the backstory about how the band formed. So I guess that means we need to start with Mother Love Bone. Well, actually we need to start with Green River. Ever heard of them? Probably not, unless you're a big Pearl Jam fan. Green River was formed in 1984, right here in the Pacific Northwest. More specifically, in Seattle. Some of the members of the band were Mark Arm, who later went on to form Mudhoney, Jeff Ament, and Stone Gossard. Now you understand why we had to start here. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole history of the band. That's a story for another album. Eventually, Green River broke up, and out of the ashes formed the band Mother Love Bone with Ament, Gossard, and their new vocalist, 24-year-old Andy Wood. Right before Mother Love Bone's debut album came out, Wood died of a heroin overdose. Yet again, Ament and Gossard were without a band to perform in. Ament took some time to shoot hoops and reflect on life. He had been a part of two bands destined for success, but ultimately met their demise before they could succeed. Before Wood's death, he had been living with the frontman of a really popular Seattle band, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. Cornell was devastated by the death of his best friend, Andy Wood. He started writing songs for an album inspired by his friendship with Wood. He asked remaining members of Mother Love Bone, newly recruited Mike McReady, and his Soundgarden drummer, Matt Cameron, to become a supergroup known as Temple of the Dog. At the time the album was coming together, Amon and Gossard were looking for a singer for a new band. A demo tape of some songs they had got together found its way down to Southern California through ex-Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons. It fell into the lap of Eddie Vedder, then known as Edward Lewis Severson III. They were both a part of the San Diego music scene and good friends. Rumor has it that he listened to the album while at work at a Chevron gas station. Fetter, originally from Chicago, Illinois, took the demo tape and recorded vocals quickly and mailed the demos back to Ament and Gossard. The demos on that tape are known as the Mama Son Demos. There were tons of singers in Seattle that auditioned and wanted to be in the band. However, the Seattle duo was so impressed by his powerful voice they invited Vetter up to jam more. Vetter was focused. He told the band he wanted to go directly into the practice space, dubbed as Galleria Potato Head by the band. 
Within an hour of landing in Seattle and for the next week, the roots of Pearl Jam were taking hold. I've been to the building where the practice room was, actually. The alley feels a bit unsafe and dark and dirty, even after the gentrification of Seattle. It's hard to walk down the alley without stepping in bird and or dog feces. Sorry to mention it, but I'm trying to paint a picture here. (laughs) Dumpsters overflowing. Graffiti everywhere. You can totally imagine Eddie getting locked out of one of the practice session in the rain, even. Standing in the same spot he wrote that song, Oceans. This practice session happened before the band was even called Pearl Jam. Initially, they were known as Mookie Blaylock, after the NBA player that the band were all fans of. After the week was over, Eddie flew back to Southern California. He packed his bags and moved to Seattle and never looked back. Just two weeks after forming as a band, Mookie Blaylock performed their first show at the off-ramp. The venue is known today as El Corazon and was less than a 10-mile walk from my apartment when I lived in Seattle. I can't tell you how many shows I've seen there. Every time I'd go to a show, I'd imagine looking on the stage and seeing Pearl Jam up there. I walked by that venue all the time. Anyway, back to the story. After the band was sent notice from NBA player Mookie Blaylock's lawyers, they announced on a radio broadcast in March of 1991 that their new name would be Pearl Jam. The next day, Pearl Jam went into London Bridge Studios in northern Seattle to record their first album, 10. If you're wondering, yes, Mookie Blaylock's number was 10. Around this time, the band also found time to make a cameo in Cameron Crowe's movie Singles, which was Crowe's love letter to his new home of Seattle. Jeff, Eddie, and Stone played the fictional band Citizen Day. I won't get too into that. It sounds like a great album for another season, actually. After they finished recording the album, their drummer Dave Cruzen left the band to go to rehab to treat his drinking problem. He was replaced by Matt Chamberlain briefly, who left the band to join Saturday Night Live's house band. He recommended drummer Dave Abruzzese, whose first show was the infamous Mural Amphitheater in Seattle Center. If you haven't seen that show, it's a must-see for Pearl Jam fans. Fun fact, Seattle holds an event every summer called the Bite of Seattle, where you can go taste food from around the city and hear local bands play on three different stages. One of the stages is the Mural Amphitheater. One summer, I went and local Pearl Jam cover band called Washed in Black played the entire set from that infamous show on August 23rd, 1991. It was such a cool experience. While it wasn't Eddie, Mike, Stone, and Jeff up there, I did get a sense of what it was like. It was truly unforgettable, an experience that I'll never forget. Four days after that show, on August 27th, 1991, 10 was released. The album was produced by Rick Parshar, who also produced the Temple of the Dog self-titled album. The album has sold over 60 million albums, making it 13 times platinum. What makes that impressive is the record did not have a big budget. I think we spent about $25,000 making 10 and about three times that mixing it bassist Jeff Ament recently told Classic Rock Magazine. 
but it was still a third of that money that we'd spent making the Mother Love Bone record. We didn't expect the record to be a huge deal, but I guess it kind of became one. You think? (laughs) Before we get into the themes of the album, I have some fun, quite possibly unknown facts about Pearl Jam Album 10. First, lead single Alive is actually part of a trilogy of songs that tell a dark story. When you haven't slept for days, you get so sensitive that it feels like every nerve is directly exposed, Vetter said. I went surfing in that sleep-deprived state and totally started dealing with a few things that I hadn't dealt with. I was really focused on this one thing, and I had the music in my mind at the same time. I was literally writing some of these words while I was going up against a wave. After his surf session, he rushed home to record the vocals to this trilogy, Alive, Once, and Footsteps. That became the Mama's Son demo. In 1993, he told Cameron Crowe what Alive meant to him. The song of the story is that a mother is with a father and the father dies. It's an intense thing because the son looks just like the father. The son grows up to be the father. The person that she lost, his father's dead. And now this confusion, his mother, his love, how does he love her? How does she love him? In fact, the mother, even though she's married to someone else, there's no one she's ever loved more than the father. You know how it is. First love and stuff. And the guy dies. How could you ever get him back? But the son, he looks exactly like him. It's uncanny. So she wants him. The son is oblivious to it all. He doesn't know what the is going on. He's still dealing. He's still growing up. He's still dealing with love. He's still dealing with the death of his father. All he knows is, I'm still alive. Those three words, that's totally out of burden. Furthermore, The take used on the album actually comes from a demo session recorded at London Bridge Studios. When the band proved unable to duplicate the power and intensity of the Alive demo during the official 10 recording sessions, they decided to go with the original recording for the album. However, there was a new Mike McCready guitar solo that was added to the outro during the album's final mix. Vetter would go on to say that in the opening track once, the son in Alive becomes a serial killer. Footsteps, which would eventually become Jeremy, is when he is executed. Another fun fact is that the band had a difficult time recording their next single, Evenflow. McCready estimated that they recorded the song 50 to 70 times. I swear to God, it was a nightmare, he said. We played that thing over and over again until we hated each other. Another fun fact is that on the song Oceans, Tim Palmer, who mixed the record on a converted farm in Dorking, England, played a pepper mill as a shaker and drumsticks on a fire extinguisher as a sort of bell effect. Alright, last fun fact is that Tin's cover album makes it look like the band's members are superimposed over letters spelling out Pearl Jam. They were actually doing their all-for-one pose for photographer Lance Mercer in front of a giant wooden Pearl Jam cutout designed and constructed by Jeff Ament, who served as the art director for the original album packaging. 
you can actually see these letters at the Pearl Jam Home and Away exhibit at the Experience Music Project, now known as the Museum of Pop Culture. As a member of the Museum of Pop Culture, I really went to this exhibit so many times. It's so cool. There's so much there that, you know, just from all different eras of their time, you know, they actually have the Mama Son demo tape there. I mean, that was wild to me. (laughs) They have a bronze statue of Andy Wood to, you know, give respect and admiration to their fallen friend and former bandmate, actually, from Mother Love Bone. They actually have a setup that looks like their rehearsal space, too, with all of their gear, instruments, and all sorts of stickers from throughout the years. Of course, there are several broken guitars, and I even took my pictures at the wooden letters that they had set up. So I have my own copy of just me (laughs) as if I were on the cover of Pearl Jam's 10 album. I could go on and on and on about this, but really it's just so cool to see all the stage props and outfits and, you know, very historical things throughout the band's career. If you're ever in Seattle, Washington, I would definitely recommend going. It's so worth your money. While you're there, you can also see exhibits on Nirvana and Jimi Hendrix too, local Seattle heroes. Okay, let's switch gears. Let's talk about the themes of this album. Pearl Jam has always been an outspoken and politically charged band. From fighting Ticketmaster to keeping the Showbox, a Seattle staple concert venue, from closing its doors. On this album, you hear Eddie singing about growing up thinking his stepdad was his dad, when his real dad had only came around a few times and was introduced to him as a friend of the family. The song is about that experience, but to fans, it means so much more. It's an anthem celebrating that you're still alive on this earth. Life can be hard, and I have to say it's quite meaningful to yell, I'm still alive, in a stadium with thousands of other people that get to escape their life for a few hours. Moving through the rest of the album, you have topics such as homelessness, suicide, identity, and bullying discussed as well. While it's unclear if the song Porch is about abortion, Eddie uses the performances of this song on MTV's Unplugged and Saturday Night Live to make it clear that he's pro-choice when it comes to women's productive rights. In Garden, better comments on the morals of society. This song was written while in a pool hall, possibly the Central Saloon, with Chris Cornell and bandmate Stone Gossard. They were watching a speech by then-President George H.W. Bush giving a speech about the invasion of Kuwait, with the Garden of Stone representing a cemetery of soldiers lost. Alright, now let's take some time to discuss some of my favorite lyrics from the album. It was really hard not picking a lyric from every song on the album, by the way. <laughs> from the song Even Flow. Even Flow. Thoughts arrive like butterflies. Oh, he don't know. So he chases them away. Oh, someday yet, he'll begin his life again. Ah, whispering hands gently lead him away. Him away him away. Even Flow is a song that most people go to to mock Pearl Jam and more specifically Eddie Vedder's vocal style. However, this is a song that tackles a pretty serious subject, homelessness. 
an issue that so many queer people in the community face, by the way. In 2018, I went to see the home shows at Seattle's Safe Coast Stadium, now known as T-Mobile Park. Thanks, capitalism. At that show, Eddie opened up about a homeless man that he befriended that would hang out by their recording studio. During breaks, he would go outside there and talk to the man. Throughout their recording career, Eddie would reconnect with the man. However, as time went on, the man was there less and less until he wasn't there any longer. Eddie suspects that the man passed away because his health was deteriorating each time Eddie saw him. That's what the song is about. Maybe next time you walk by someone homeless, say hello and give them a dollar. The LGBT community is affected a lot by homeless, especially in the youth. Unfortunately, not everyone's parents are as accepting as mine are. Moving on to the song Black. You know, as a fan of emo music, this lyric would speak to me. All the love gone bad, turn my world to black, tattooed all I see, all that I am, all I'll be, yeah. I know someday you'll have a beautiful life, I know you'll be a star, in somebody else's sky, but why, why, why can't it be, oh can't it be mine? This song is about the unrequited feelings that you have oftentimes. I cannot tell you the number of times that I felt this way. Being queer can be so lonely sometimes. People oftentimes are only looking for momentary connections. Afterwards, your world can turn to black. That empty feeling because you're alone again when all you are really wanting is to make a lasting connection. From the song Jeremy, I have a short lyric to share. King Jeremy, the wicked, oh, ruled his world. Jeremy is a song based on a true story about kids that were bullied in school. It's actually based on two boys. One in an article Eddie read, and the other is a boy that he actually bullied in school. If you listen to the last episode, I clearly relate as I was incessantly bullied for being queer. While I would never take the actions Jeremy does in this song, I definitely wished harmed on a few people. This part of the song is about escaping into your own world. I didn't have a lot of friends in school and would create art projects or things for myself to do in my room all the time. From release, I enjoy this lyric a lot. Oh, dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you. Somehow, I'll ride the wave where it takes me. For me, I often reflect on life. Am I on the right path? Am I making my parents proud? We often strive to have the success our parents have achieved. That's why I like this song because I often recognize mannerisms in myself that I must have inherited from my father. The lyric reminds me to ride the wave and go where life takes me. Building off his idea in the third verse, Eddie Vedder says, I'll wait up in the dark for you to speak to me. How I've opened up. Release me. Release me. Release me. Ah, release me. Which I relate to when I'm feeling down on myself. Sort of hoping or thinking, what would my dad do in this situation? Basically, I related to this part of the song when I'm feeling frustrated and need guidance. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Trouble Trouble Podcast. 
The theme music you heard at the top of the show was made by me. The logo was illustrated and designed by the amazingly talented queer artist, Will Jameson. You can find them on Instagram and Twitter, at the Will Jameson. This is an indie podcast, which means no commercials, at least for now. It also means that I can't use the clips from the album we discussed because my lawyers have advised against it. Copyright laws, am I right? The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe, tell a friend, and leaving a review. It really helps other music fans find this show. If you're a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race, feel free to listen to my other podcast, Thanks for Coming, a RuPaul's Drag Race podcast. I record that show with two of my best friends, Jamal and Stoney. You can find us at TFC Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's all I've got for you now. If you made it through the whole podcast, you rock. I'll see you at the next show in two weeks, Friday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be there. With that, I'll see you next time at the show. And before I sign off, I would like to, of course, extend the invitation to Eddie Vedder and the guys of Pearl Jam to come on the show. I'd love to interview you. Pick your brains a little bit. Signing off, I'm your host, Seth. Rock on, young savior. Don't give up your hopes.